I would ask you to take your Bibles and turn with me this morning back to the passage that we read earlier from the book of Joshua, and I would direct your attention to Joshua chapter 5, and we'll be taking as our text verse 12. So considering with the Lord's help, Joshua 5 at verse 12, and the manna ceased on the morrow after they had eaten of the old corn of the land, neither had the children of Israel manna any more, but they did eat of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. Here in our text, after centuries of anticipation, the people of Israel now stand on the cusp of entering into the promised inheritance uh, that the Lord has given to them. And as you know, and as the New Testament teaches us, we have here uh, wonderful gospel themes that are drawn upon the canvas of Old Testament history. We know that their Israel during their time in Egypt and bondage is in so many ways a picture of uh, the natural man in his state of uh, fallen condition under the bondage and slavery and dominion of sin, uh, held captive under the tyranny of the greatest despotism the world has ever known, the tyranny of the devil himself, and how the Lord in His richness of grace comes and delivers them by His own mighty arm, overthrows uh, Pharaoh and his armies, casts them into the sea, and causes His people to pass over on the dry land, a great picture of the redemption that is to be found in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and His work upon the cross. And they're brought out of Egypt into a wilderness, a barren place, a place that is destitute, a dry land. And they have a period of passage through that wilderness, a picture of what it is for the believer to walk through this world, which is in so many ways a veil of tears and a howling wilderness for the people of God, a spiritually dry place but they are en route to the promised land. And as Hebrews makes abundantly clear, and as Abraham himself understood, that promised land was not an end in itself, that geographical location with the abundance of provisions that were to be found there, it too was a springboard, a picture that directed their minds to something far greater. And as Hebrews tells us, Abraham saw it. He saw through the promised land to what it represented in the eternal inheritance that is purchased and provided in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was a picture of glory, a picture of the final destination of the Christian, of heaven itself. And so here we were orienting ourselves. We come in Joshua 2 chapter 5. The wilderness is now behind. They're standing in the borders of Canaan. They are on the cusp of entering in to this inheritance that the Lord has so long promised them. Having called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees, he walked that length and breadth of the land, took sight of it, but then the people waited for centuries, and now that time has passed and they are here. We read in verse 12, and the manna ceased on the morrow after they had eaten of the, of the old corn of the land. This is something which they knew was coming, right? It had been foretold uh, already. If you go back, for example, uh, 
uh, to Exodus chapter 16, uh, after the, the manna uh, originally uh, began to fall there toward the end of the chapter, um, the Lord commands Moses to take, in verse 32, fill an omer of it to be kept for your generations, that they may see the bread wherewith I have fed you in the wilderness uh, when I brought you forth from the land of Egypt. And so they did that. And then we read in verse 35, and the children of Israel did eat manna 40 years until they came to a land inhabited. They did eat manna until they came under the borders of the land of Canaan. And so we'll consider this, this theme with the Lord's help this morning of the manna ceased. And we begin, first of all, uh, with pilgrimage. So first of all, we begin with pilgrimage. Here again, it says, and, it came, and, and, uh, and the manna ceased on the morrow after they had eaten of the old corn of the land. You think back with me to what the Scriptures record here. It was after the very first Passover, so the, the initial administration of the Passover, after the first Passover in Egypt, while still within the land of Egypt, before they entered the wilderness, it was after that Passover that the manna began, after they had entered into the wilderness. And now here we are on the far end, the other side, and now we're reading after the first Passover in the land, within the borders. So after they have left the wilderness, the manna ceased. And so the manna was given for pilgrimage. It was given for that period, limited to that period, of sojourn through the wilderness. And you'll notice what the Lord does. He takes them into the wilderness and He makes them hungry. He's the one who creates that sensation and need and sense of need and desire for nourishment and food and so on. And then having created the hunger, He fed them. And we read this, of course, in multiple places in Deuteronomy and even later on at the end of the Old Testament era, Nehemiah is rehearsing uh, these, these same truths. But the Lord sustained them for 40 years. You know, people today will speak about uh, superfoods, right? So there are certain foods that are especially uh, nutrient-dense that have a lot of benefits. But this, isn't, this manna is not a superfood. This is a supernatural food that the Lord is providing. It's a supernatural food. It's a miracle. As we sing in Psalm 78, it is a miracle from heaven. It is bread that has come down from heaven. Indeed, in the Psalms, we're told that it was, as it were, angel's food because of its origin, because of the supernatural provision that it represents. And in all of this, of course, there is a revelation of God Himself. It is the Lord who, in the abundant riches of His grace, is providing out of His resources for their lack. And the Lord is doing so over a sustained period. So His, his faithfulness is being set before Him. They're being confronted day by day, in the words of the psalmist, with the fact that goodness and mercy is pursuing them every day, all the days of their life. Great is the, the faithfulness of God. They're not being consumed despite their worthiness of being consumed because of His great compassions and His mercies, which are new 
every morning. And so he's giving them this manna. And children, what was it like? What, what is this manna? You know, what, what exactly was it like? And we can read in the scripture in one place it tells us it was like coriander seed. Maybe mama has, has a bottle of the, the coriander seed used as a spice in her cabinet at home, but it's a very small seed, right? We're told in one place that it's the color of bedlium, another it's white. We're told that it had the, the, the taste of <clears throat> fresh oil. And in another place, we're told that it was like wafers uh, uh, with honey. And you, you combine these different descriptions that are given to us, it was both sweet and savory. It was both of these things. It was both rich, like oil, and it was also light in terms of its, in ter- in terms of its uh, on the palate and so on, light like a wafer and so on. So this is what it is. This is as much as we know as far as what the Lord provides. But it is coming day by day uh, for the people in the wilderness. And what's the point of all of this? It's obviously at the, at the first level, there's, there's physical nourishment that's being provided to sustain them in their pilgrimage. But is that all? Of course not. And we come to John chapter 6, and Jesus makes abundantly clear, if it wasn't clear already, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ ties that manna to himself. He says, he describes the manna as bread from heaven, which is what it was. And then he reveals himself and speaks of himself as the true bread from heaven. And so he's connecting these two things. And he's saying that what you know in the records of what's provided from the Old Testament era about that provision of manna was actually a pointer. It was a signpost. It was signifying something far greater. It was pointing to Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is the true bread that comes down from heaven. And so you see this in John chapter 6, for example, in verses 31 and 32, Christ is the bread of life. He's the one who gives life to the world. He's the one who provides for those who are dead in trespasses and sins that they might be made alive unto God, given spiritual life in their soul and given eternal life here, now, and enduring for, for everlasting. And so the, the manna is, is a picture for these Old Testament saints of Christ, a picture of Christ's presence, and a picture mediated uh, through divine ordinances, through the appointments that God had, had given. Right? It was, there, was, there was mediation, if you will, in the in the manna itself, through which they were being called really to feed upon him by faith. That's the point of John 6, is that they're being called to, that that indeed we are being called to feed upon the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. And so here we find ourselves this morning in in the wilderness of, of this world. And it is truly a spiritually hungry place. Left without the Lord Jesus Christ, you will spiritually starve to death. You will perish without feeding upon Him by faith. It is a hungry place and people will gorge themselves on the fare that the world has to offer it. And it's like a person who has intense thirst taking a a, a glass of salt water and drinking it in order to satisfy, to quench their thirst. It only intensifies their thirst. And so it is 
with the things of, of this world. There's nothing that can provide for the need that is to be found in our souls. Our sin leaves us starving. That's where we find ourselves. And our only hope is what comes from outside this world, not from the the grit and gravel that we can somehow gather to ourselves from the things in this world, but our only hope is from what comes from outside of this world. In other words, what comes down from heaven, which is the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. And so as the, the Israelites were being taught to look up, weren't they? They were being taught to look up for this, this provision, this source of blessing. The Lord brought manna from heaven, and they gathered from the resources that the Lord had given to them. And we too are being brought day by day to look up for the blessing that comes down through the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing, as the Bible tells us, and as the gospel clearly articulates, that only the Lord Jesus Christ can satisfy. Only the Lord Jesus Christ can sustain the soul can save, redeem, cleanse, pardon, forgive, sanctify, preserve, and ultimately glorify a soul. And so, in the midst of this earthly pilgrimage, the Lord comes to us in His His Word. And we're being reminded, yes, man cannot live by bread alone impossible. You can have the healthiest food, the richest food, the most expensive food, the most healthy food. You can have all of these things. You can have all of the other things that the, that the, the, the world and its modern advances might provide for you. You can't live. You cannot live. You will die. We can't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord Himself. And so we are like Jeremiah, thy words were found, and I did eat them, and they were the joy and rejoicing of my heart, for I am called by thy name, Lord God of hosts. We're like Job, who looks at the word of God and says, I esteemed thy word more than my necessary food. It was more necessary, more essential, more indispensable for me than the food that is so often thought of as as necessary. The Lord provides in the Lord Jesus Christ food which the world knows not of. But alas, in the preaching of the gospel and in, in, in the presentation of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is revealed through His Word, who is revealed through these inspired words to poor helpless sinners such as ourselves, we, we find ourselves, like Israel, a mixed multitude. Here they are under so many blessings. Here they are receiving so many tokens of mercy for which they were un, unworthy. And yet, where, what do we read about the, many of the Israelites? They're not looking up. They're looking back. They're thinking back to Egypt. And they're like, well, you know, the leeks and the onions, all those things that we enjoyed so much in Egypt. They're looking back to the world. They're looking back to these things. And so they're objecting. They find in their hearts objections, objections to what the Lord is doing with them, objections to what the Lord's providing. Indeed, they despise 
this angelic food, this, this food that has come down from heaven, they're brought to, to despise it. And they're saying, what? what? What is it that they prefer? Ultimately, at the end of the day, bondage. They're saying we, we would rather be under the boot of tyranny. We would rather be enchained. We'd rather be enslaved in a state of bondage and to enjoy these, these little tiny tokens of leeks and onions and so forth, to have those things rather than to be where the Lord has us and to be receiving this manna that's come down from heaven, this picture of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they're drawn, right, away. Their hearts are drawn away from what ought to be drawing them upward to, to the person and work of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so things haven't changed all that much, have they? We find ourselves in very different circumstances outwardly, but all of the enticements of the world's come. And the world says, you can have this, and you can have that, and you can gratify this pleasure, and you can seek this thing and indulge in that, and you can enjoy this, some of which are lawful, some of which are not lawful, but you can set your heart on them and your affections on them and so on and so forth. And there the temptation is for some of you this morning. And you come under the preaching of the Word of God. And here we have, as it were, manna coming down from heaven and Christ being presented to us in the gospel. And your heart is being called away to these enticements. And you're saying, in essence, I would rather remain enslaved in the bondage of the worst tyranny the world's ever known under the boot of Satan himself and enjoy these things of the world than to have what God's given to come to Him on His terms and to receive from His hand out of the bounty and graciousness of what He has provided. But what was the root problem with Israel? It's the same root problem that continues to be uncovered again and again and again. The problem with Israel wasn't just the fact that they didn't have a taste for manna. It was an attack on God Himself. It was an attack on God Himself. Thou art the one who brought us into this wilderness, taken away the things that we liked. Thou art the one who has brought us out here, you know, to starve and die and to litter the wilderness with our carcasses. Thou art the one who has given us this plain, worthless manna that we have to eat day after day after day. They're despising Christ Himself. Because what's happening? In fact, what's happening is the exact opposite. In fact, what is happening is God is revealing to him his abundant goodness. The Lord is showing him himself to be one who is opulent, that he, he withholds no good thing from those who come to him by faith, that he is the one who is absolutely faithful, that he will provide at every point, that he will deliver on all that he has promised, that he can sustain, that he is enough. He's revealing the glory of His faithfulness, His goodness, His mercies, all of this abundance. And their minds and hearts are, are skewing that and distorting that and twisting that. And they're beginning to think about God in ways that are absolutely foreign and alien to who He truly is. And this is where we have to be watchful, isn't it? Because at the end of the day, uh, 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 despising the Lord Jesus Christ objecting to the gospel is actually aimed at the Lord Himself, a distorted view of the goodness and grace, the mercies and faithfulness of such a rich and glorious God who comes and sets forth Christ before us as the atoning sacrifice for sin. 
So first of all, we have pilgrimage. Secondly, we have preparation. Secondly, there is preparation. So remember some of the context that we read in reading the whole chapter earlier. There's a sequence of events that take place. So they come uh, to, to the borders, the Lord dries up the Jordan, they cross over. And the first thing we're told in the chapter is that they circumcised all the males. They circumcised all the males, then having been circumcised, they then for the second time in history celebrated, according to the Lord's appointment, the Passover. And then we're told they ate the food, food of the land, and then the manna ceased. I mean, you, you think of the sequence here. What, why are they here again, children? Children, why are they at the border? Why are they inside the borders of Canaan? They're here on a military campaign. They're here for conquest. They got months of incessant war ahead of them. Battles, fights, conquering cities, taking portions of the land, and so on and so forth. Disinheriting the, the, the inhabitants that are there. So, okay, you recognize that. They come to the land and they circumcise the males according to the Lord's appointment. You think of the faith, not only in response to what God's appointed to them, they're there for a military conquest and the first thing they do is circumcise the males. Think of the vulnerability that this puts them in. The vulnerability to being attacked after such circumstances. You'll remember in Genesis 34 with the Shechemites, right? There's Simeon and Levi and they persuade the Shechemites that, you know, if you want to marry our daughters, you first got to be circumcised, but they were setting them up. They circumcised them so that they were absolutely helpless at that point. And then they went through and slaughtered all of them, right? They killed them. That's what they did. So it gives you a picture of the vulnerability of, of their circumstances here and the exercise of faith in this. And then you have the reinstitution of the Passover, which of course is in part retrospective. It's pointing them backward. It's a memorial of deliverance, salvation, of, of redemption. But it also has a prospective element to it as well, uh, an element of, of looking forward as well to what is, is yet to come, the redemption, because it was redemption from Egypt unto entrance into the promised land. And so all of this is being set forth and all of the theological content of the Passover, the spiritual import of what's being, uh, what God has designed there is being set before them. Gospel truths are being set uh, before them. And so they eat of the Paschal lamb which we know is a picture of Jesus Christ, right? Paul tells the Corinthians, Christ is our Passover. He is the Paschal Lamb. And so they're feeding upon the Paschal Lamb. Then they ate on the second day from the corn of the land after they had, according to divine law, given the first sheaves to the Lord. And the third day, the manna ceases, and from there on, they eat of the fruit of the land. So they're inside the borders. They've got as it were, one foot in the land of a promise. They don't have the full inheritance yet. They haven't been given the whole lot of what God's promised. They're barely inside the border. And yet they already begin to feast upon all that the Lord had promised. They already begin to, 
to feast upon the provisions that the land itself yields. And in a sense, you know, the manna ceases at this point. In a sense, they've been prepared for this for 40 years. You say, well, well, how so? How, how exactly have they been prepared for this, you know, ceasing of, of the manna? You think about it. The manna fell every day for 40 years. Well, not quite. The manna fell every day for 40 years, except on every Sabbath day. No manna fell on the Sabbath day, right? They were given a double portion the day before that sustained them uh, over, over the Sabbath day. Well, why would that be? Why, why didn't they, the manna fall? And our first answer is right, is correct. Our first answer, of course, is the fourth commandment. Right? Thou shalt not work. They're not to be out gathering, you know, food on, on the Lord's day. And that's true, that there's a day of rest that God has ordained there. But there's more than that because it is preparation for them. It's also a picture. It's a picture for them of a time that was coming when there would be no more manna. Once a week, they had a reminder that there's a day coming when this manna is going to cease, that the manna on the weekly Sabbath itself has to keep a Sabbath. But we're being pointed to the fact that there's a day that's coming when the manna will cease altogether. And this is not insignificant because the Sabbath itself is a symbol of heaven, isn't it? Sabbath points back, of course, to creation. We see it in the fourth commandment, which we read this morning. Six days God created the world, seventh he says, he rested and he sanctified the Sabbath day. Before the fall, the Sabbath is an institution God's ordained. We see it in the fourth commandment. So it's, it points us back. We also know that it points us to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We celebrate the resurrection every single Sabbath by the celebration of the Lord's day on the first day of the week. But it also points us forward. And in Hebrews chapter 4, this comes out clear as crystal, where he says there in, in chapter 4, verse 9, but there... There yet awaits a rest, and in the Greek it's a Sabbath-keeping for the people of God. There yet awaits a Sabbath-keeping for the people of God. That the weekly Sabbath is also a picture of heaven, of, of glory. We, we, the whole day is to be given to the exercises of public and private worship. The whole day is to be God-centered. The whole day is to be spent in His presence. The whole day is to be set apart. All of our worldly recreations and occupations and so on, these things are set aside. The whole day is, is for the Lord. And so the Sabbath is a foretaste, if you will, of, of heaven to come. And so there's things that are coming together here, right? The promised land, we've already noted, the promised land is a picture of the heavenly inheritance, of what the Lord will provide through His redeeming work in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you come back to places like John 6, and we don't have time this morning to tease all of this out, but in John chapter 6, over, you know, Jesus is setting Himself forward and He's saying, I am the true bread that comes down from heaven. And He says, I am the one who is the source of life. I will give you life. Over and over in chapter 6, He's speaking of that eternal or everlasting life. He's saying, I will raise you up on the last day and give you uh, life forevermore and so on. And all of these things are being, are being woven together for 
this particular juncture, at this particular crossroads in Joshua chapter 5. They're coming into that picture of the promised inheritance, the heavenly inheritance. They have the Sabbath reinforcing for them over those 40 years, the man is going to cease and we're going to eat of the abundance of the land itself. And it's, it's helpful for us even now, isn't it? Because the weekly Sabbath is preparing us, is preparing the believer who's in a state of grace for the heavenly Sabbath. Heaven is an enduring, never-ending, perpetual Sabbath. And the weekly Sabbath can't ever be put away until we reach the thing that has been signified in heaven. But more than that, the weekly Sabbath is actually training our spiritual appetites, right? It's actually training us in this fixing of our gaze upon God, upon His glory, upon His Word, upon His worship. And in doing so, it is building anticipation. So just as the the Israelites could have, if they were walking by faith, had in their weekly Sabbath a reminder, an anticipation, there's a day coming, man is going to cease, we're going to come into the promised land, and it's going to be all the abundance that God's provided. So the Christian today has the opportunity to have the building of that anticipation of all that is, is yet promised, all that is to come. Heaven is beholding the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, which includes exquisite, unparalleled intense, glorious joys and ecstasy in His presence. We, have, we sip today. We, we have a foretaste of that and what is provided in the weekly Sabbath. And yet here in Joshua and in the 40 years uh, in the wilderness, there were those who came short, who refused, who refused to feed upon Christ. And you say, well, how? Because they refused to feed upon Him by faith. This is, again, the point that the, the book of Hebrews is, is making for us in those early chapters there. You'll remember uh, in chapter 3 uh, where he says uh, toward the end of, of, of chapter 3, howbeit, well, he says in verse six, 16, for some, when they had heard, did, not, uh, did provoke, howbeit not all that came out of Egypt by Moses... But with whom was he grieved forty years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest? But to them that believed not. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. How do we feed upon the Lord Jesus Christ? We do so by faith, receiving and resting upon all that is found in the person of Jesus Christ, in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, as He is freely offered to us in the preaching of the gospel. And if you go back to John 6, this is the same problem there as well. The people are murmuring about Jesus, what He's saying, about the bread that comes down. They begin objecting to the things that He's saying. He's speaking about how they need to feed upon His body and His blood, and they have no concept of what He's talking about there. And so they're, they're murmuring, and then you get to the end of the chapter, and some turned away, and they walked no more. Some of His disciples no longer walked with him. 
right? They're objecting to, to Christ Himself. They're not receiving Him by faith. They're not seeing that, yes, feeding upon His body and blood is descriptive of our feeding upon Him by faith, and thereby the mouth of the soul, as it were, taking in uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is also a description of, of preparation. But then thirdly, the promised land. Thirdly, promised land. They've entered, in entering the land, in many ways they are home, finally. They're home as, and as such, there is a promise of abundant food, right? A land flowing with milk and honey. All of the various descriptions, very graphic descriptions that are given and foretold in Exodus and, and, and in Deuteronomy. I mean, even the, ten, even the ten spies who persisted in unbelief admitted the abundance of the land. Korah denied it and died. But entering into the land meant entering into the promise of, of abundance, right? They're coming. You, you think back, and it's far greater, but it's reminiscent at least of Adam in the garden where he's given all the trees of the field, all, all the fruit as food except for the one the Lord prohibited from him uh, partaking of. But it's the picture of the Lord's goodness and bounty and abundance and opulence and all of these things were provided by God, not by Adam. You come to the land of promise and they're getting, there's vineyards that they haven't planted, fruit trees that they're harvesting, that they haven't uh, fertilized, fields that they're being able to glean from. There's houses that are built and barns and so on. These are things that the Lord Himself has provided. They haven't built for themselves. It's a land of opulence, rocks dripping with honey, as the text says, streams flowing with milk. And so here they are, and they ate of the corn of the land, the grain, the wheat. They have the barns that are full, barns of the inhabitants. And we're told that they did it the selfsame day, the text says. In other words, there's eagerness, the selfsame day. They, they dove in headfirst, as it were, eager to enjoy the blessings that the Lord had given to them. Right? All of this is descriptive of something so much higher, so much more beautiful and exquisite, a picture, a pointer, a small shadow pointing us to the glories of heaven itself. Enter thou into the joy of the Lord, the Lord will say to His believing people. It will be a place of plenty and of all of the variety and abundance of satisfaction for soul and body in the presence of Christ and beholding His glory. And we're told the tree of life, there it is. It appears again at the end of the Bible as we see it at the beginning of the Bible. And it gives fruits every month. In other words, it is bearing fruit continually. And the leaves are for the healing of the nations and so on. All of this is graphic description of the Lord's abundance. And yet our text says that in entering the manna ceased. It's gone. Never to be seen again. Well, that's true and not true, actually. It's true that it ceased. It's true that it is not seen again. 
But it's not true that it's gone. Because if you go back to that Exodus 16 passage, when the manna fell, the Lord told him to gather an omer and to put it in a pot. And that pot was placed in the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant went with them into the land and continued with them, as you well know, for time to come. The manna was still with them. They couldn't see it. It was no longer falling day by day. There was manna still there. What's the ark? The ark is, a, is described in the Bible as the throne of God, right? It was an Old Testament picture of the throne of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it goes into the Holy of Holies. We'll hear more about this this, this evening if God spares us. There is the ark inside the Holy of Holies. And the, 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 the cherubim are over, over top of it, the, the mercy seat over, over that, in the inner sanctum, as it were. It was a symbol of the throne and presence of God in the midst of His people. And there is the manna in that ark continuing with them. And so then it becomes very interesting. When we open our, our Bibles and we go to the book of, of Revelation, and in chapter 2, the Lord's giving a promise when he says in verse 17 that those who overcome will I give to eat of the hidden manna. Right? What's the hidden manna? What's the manna that was in the ark that no one could open, no one could see or get? But the Lord is saying, he's using that, he's drawing on that Old Testament symbolism as the whole book of Revelation does. And he says, for those who overcome, will I give to eat of the hidden manna. Here the Lord is, is setting before us again these gospel truths that are so rich and so glorious. And the Lord is saying, here is the bounty, right? We come to the end of chapter 7, Revelation chapter 7, and in verse 16, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, Neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat, for the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them, and shall lead them unto living fountains of waters, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There's no more hunger. And we said that the world is a spiritually hungry place. We're left in our sins starving to death, as it were. Not just physically, if we were left to ourselves, but spiritually this is the case. And here in glory, no hunger. There's complete contentment, satisfaction, provision. Why? Because the Lamb, notice, in the midst of the throne, shall feed them perpetually and continuously. What a rich blessing this is. And so here we are in this world, this wilderness world as it were, and the Lord has given to us manna. Christ comes in His presence, mediated through the word and ordinances that He's, He's given to us. We have the word of God. We have the sacraments. We have you know, gospel ordinances. And here is spiritual manna that comes to us. That, those means of grace cease in the heavenly Canaan. There'll be no more preaching in heaven, right? No more of the ordinances that we're so familiar with. The, the Lord's Supper, in, in the Supper, He says, do this till I come. There's a day coming when that spiritual manna, these ordinances, will cease at the entrance into the promised land. 
Because in heaven, the Lord's people will no longer need to be sustained as sojourners, as pilgrims. They will have arrived home in the presence of the King of glory. They will enjoy the bounty of glory forever. There will be no more hunger because there will be no more sin. Soul is perfected in holiness at death. The body at the resurrection is raised and glorified. And here the believer in heaven, perfect, sinless, and body and soul without sin. In the presence, the immediate presence, beholding the presence of Christ, beholding the glory of God, no longer through the mirror or glass of His Word and ordinances, but beholding Him, as it were, face to face. So there's no more hunger because there's no more sin. And yet there is a continual feeding. There's, there's no hunger, but there's a continuous feeding because there is the condition of being satiated, satisfied, something that's even difficult for our minds to grasp. On one hand, perfectly and absolutely content, and on the other hand, desiring more, always more. The revelations of the glory of Jesus Christ, as they are unfolded in their limitless depths for the unfolding ages of eternity itself. The manna will have ceased, but what will come is something that is infinitely greater. You know, one of the covenanters who went to the scaffold bid farewell to his Bible, bid farewell to all of the ordinances of worship as he prepared to die for his Presbyterian principles, but he welcomed Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He welcomed the glory of the throne and Lamb and being immediately in the presence of the Lord Himself. This is what is held out in the gospel, right? The offers and overtures that are found in the person of Christ are that which bring with them the promises of eternal life. And so, as as in the days of Moses, the Lord comes to you this morning and He says, I set before you life and death. I set before you life and death. And He is calling us in the preaching of the gospel to life. There's bondage and tyranny, the world and sin and death in its wake. And here is the glory of Jesus Christ who is the true bread that comes down from heaven through which we receive everlasting life. And the Lord says, look upon Him. Behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sins of the world. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. We're to come and to close with Him in the gospel offer. And we're to, we are to lay hold of Him by faith, resting and receiving Him in all of the bounty that He has set before us in the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ Himself. May the Lord bless these things to our hearing. Let's pray. Our gracious and eternal God in heaven, we bow down before Thy majesty. And O Lord, we pray, give us a fresh sense of that wonder of all that is to be discovered, all that is revealed in the person of Thy Son, 
the Lord Jesus Christ. Grant that he would be set before us and grant, O Lord, that we would be enabled to see, to behold his beauty and glory and to be drawn to him. Give, O Lord, the gift of faith that we might indeed feed by faith upon the Son of God to the satisfaction and salvation and everlasting good of our souls. O Lord, give to us, we pray, that even as we are enabled to feed upon that spiritual manna today, that we would do so with an eye and mind that looks to the day when this manna will cease. And will the Lord, when the Lord Himself will be all the glory, found with Him and before Him. Give, we pray, these blessings, for we ask them in the strong name of the Lord Jesus Christ.